Let us pray. Our most gracious Father, draw near and settle our hearts and our minds. Take away from us distractions and those things which keep us from loving you fully. And I pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and our ears. And that your spirit would speak to each of us and renew our hearts and enliven and enliven in us the resurrection and cause us to look forward to that final resurrection from the dead when our bodies will be renewed and sin stripped free from us. That we would then live in the glorious new earth and the new heavens that you will bring about on account of all that Christ has done for us. And it is through this same Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. It all began in a garden so long ago. Deception, a fall, desolation. All of history in a few words there. What might have been was all lost in a single moment. And yet the Creator was not willing to let his garden be invaded. For all to be totally lost to chaos. In the Creator's wisdom, with everything that happened after that, he began moving, he began working. He set aside a single area of this garden and worked it and tilled it and crafted it into a place that stood apart from the rest. Though hard to tell at times, it was different. Even when overtaken by weeds and stones and hard dirt that couldn't grow anything. Still, that little area of the garden of the Lord stayed separated. It remained separated. And it was worked through time and care to become something different from the rest. And such is the story of Abraham and his children, Israel. After the fall in the garden, God did set aside one man, and through that one man he raised up a whole nation that within the garden of the entire world became a separate plot through which he worked. And though they failed often and continually and constantly to uphold the law that he had given to them, that they said that they would willingly obey, that they failed to uphold the law, to uphold the sacrifices that he even gave to them in order that they might live in his forgiveness when they did sin. Though they failed to uphold all of those things, he still kept them separate, kept them set aside as his own people. He sent them into exile, yes, because of their idolatry and their sinfulness, but yet he brought them back out purifying them a little more, removing a little more of the dirt and the weeds that were within his plot and bringing it all down, having been set aside from the rest of the world down to one man, Jesus himself. And he is the reason that we are here today. Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation, demonstrated to be Lord through his death and his resurrection from the dead. And now on the first day of the week, we hear in this story of Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb early while it was still dark. 
in that very just careful time right before the sun begins peeking over the horizon and brightening everything up, she arrives at the tomb as the other women are coming along behind her that we hear about in the Gospels. But John here, St. John, focuses in on Mary, on Mary Magdalene, to tell of her experience of what she saw and what she was encountering. And when she got to that tomb, she ran away from it, seeing that the stone had been taken away, that the tomb was laying open. And she ran and found Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And notice there, she ran to find these two. She didn't have to run from house to house to different houses to find each of them. They were there together. They were there with one another in a home, maybe even John's home. John, the one who had taken in Jesus' mother at the cross to be as his own mother, to care for her. And here is Simon Peter there with them after his great failure his great denials, his thrice time denying that he was a follower of Jesus. And where does he go? He goes to John, the disciple that Jesus loved. Why? Why is that? Why is Peter there with John on this morning, this first Easter Sunday morning? I think that there's something there about John continuing, continuing to refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved that there's something in John that picked up a little bit more deeply than the other disciples on Jesus' love and his compassion, maybe. And so Peter goes to him, goes to him and confesses and tells him what he has done and stays with John these days throughout Friday night and all day Saturday and into Sunday morning, stays with John in mourning and grief over what has happened. For where else could he go at that moment? but to one of the other disciples, and why not the one that would soon be dubbed the one whom Jesus loved? And so there, Peter and John are when Mary shows up, and she says they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we, don't, we do not know where they have laid him. You see, she says we, which means that she is not totally by herself at the tomb at that moment when she saw that it was open. It's just simply John focusing in on her story. And so Peter, having been with John, staying with him, they both take off and they run and they flee to the tomb. They flee from the house that they are staying in. You see, there's a deep care and love in John as he races toward the tomb. He's so excited, so confused, so determined to find out what is going on that he runs and he outpaces Peter on the way and he makes sure to note it in his gospel for all of eternity that everyone knows that John the disciple, John the apostle, outran Peter. But here, they get to the tomb. But what does John do? Does he race on into the tomb to see what's happening inside of it? No, he stops. He hesitates. Even though he beat Peter there. And Peter catches up to him and stoops down and looks into the tomb and goes into it. And he sees the linen cloths lying there that John could see from the outside. And as Peter looks around, he sees something else. He sees the face cloth that they would have wrapped around Jesus' face. It's not just wadded up there with the rest of the grave clothes, but it's set aside, folded up, sitting on a little nook there in the tomb, apart from the rest of the grave clothes. And then the other disciple steps in, the almost witnesses here, 
Simon and Peter, Simon, Peter, and John. They are the almost witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. But he is not there anymore. And they are only there to see an empty tomb. And yet, as John enters in and looks around and sees what Peter has just seen, he grasps some pieces of truth and he believes. John believes that something important has happened here. He believes that Jesus' body may not have been stolen, I think. But what does he believe? We're not sure. He doesn't explain to us except with this side note, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, I think John believed that God had acted and done something, and that's what's happened to Jesus' body. But he doesn't understand yet that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he has risen in new life, not a mere resuscitation as what was done to Lazarus just a few chapters before, just a week before this moment maybe even, but that Jesus has been raised into a new bodily kind of life, one that we can't even grasp here and now. John doesn't understand that that's happened, but he believes that God has done something for Jesus. He grasps something of it, beginning to understand those constant words of Jesus about his own resurrection, not grasping the full meaning or the import, but he gets it a little bit of it. Jesus, in some way, he's beginning to understand the reality, John is, of Jesus' death and the reality of his words about returning from among the dead. Little by little, he's got a little bit of it. But then they turn and they go to their homes. Peter and John go their separate ways, both needing time to understand, to grasp, to wrestle with the enormity of what is happening in the here and now, right now. And then Mary comes back to the tomb and arrives, and she just stands there weeping. But because she is there weeping at the tomb, she becomes the first witness of the resurrection in John's story. She looks into the tomb, and what does she get to see this time? She sees two angels standing there, sitting there at the head and the foot of where Jesus had been laying. And they simply ask her, Woman, why are you weeping? And in her torment and her grief, she can only say, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Her grief is so great and overwhelming at knowing that Jesus' body has vanished and disappeared, that her Lord is gone. And she doesn't even comprehend that these two men are angels before her. Maybe their glory is so hidden that she can't see it. But nonetheless, there is a depth of grief here. So that she just simply turns away from them. She doesn't even question why they are in the tomb. She just turns around and there is Jesus. But she doesn't recognize Jesus. Here in a moment, she finally is here standing before Jesus, Jesus standing before her, but she cannot recognize him. It's beyond her understanding, her comprehension that this one man could be raised back to life. And Jesus himself says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? With compassion and concern, he says these words. The use of the word, of the word woman isn't an insult. It is a normal address to another person, to another woman in public. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? It would be like saying, dear, what is wrong? And she says again to the gardener, 
not knowing who he is. If you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And in that moment, Jesus opens her eyes, and she becomes the first witness to Jesus' resurrection. He says to her simply, Mary. And she responds with Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary has the opportunity to become the first witness because she waited at the tomb. <coughs> she waited in grief and weeping at what had taken place. But she waited nonetheless to become the first witness. All of these strange things happening all in the here and now. And what's so amazing is that after becoming the first witness, she receives the complete witness of who and what Jesus is about to do. And Jesus says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Do not cling to me. Some think this is a rather strange thing for Jesus to say. After all, hasn't he had others after this moment touch him and hug him and lay at his feet and worship him? He has. And so Jesus isn't talking about some type of physical clinging, clinging here. Do not cling to me. He's talking about an emotional clinging, a sentimental clinging. For here before Mary, her Lord and Master, the one whom she dearly loves, has reappeared. He is back alive. And so why would she not want to keep him there, to keep in that same mode, that relationship that they have always had? But yet, with Jesus' resurrection, everything has changed. He has been fully established as the true king of all creation. Our relation to him has to change now. He can no longer merely be our teacher and master, but he is now the true Lord and king of all. So do not cling to the old ways, for a new way is coming because I will ascend to the Father. I will ascend up into heaven, and there will be a new way to relate to me, a new way to access me, a new way to know me, where you can have me near to you anywhere that you are. I will be there because I will ascend to the Father and by my ascension I will be able to be with you anywhere. And he says, Go and tell my brothers, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Everything has changed. Jesus now calls the apostles his brothers. Previously, he had endeared them with the name friends. They'd been called servants. They'd been called followers, disciples. But now they are his brothers through his resurrection. They have been brought back together with him. They have been brought to him. And they have been adopted by his father. And so he says, my God and your God, my father and your father. For that is true now. For the father through Jesus has adopted them and made them his own. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, they belong to the Father now because they have trusted in Jesus. Because they belong to the Father, they can say that He is their Father. And Jesus can say, He is your Father. Likewise for us today, we are made children of God through faith. The culmination of what John said there in the first chapter of his own gospel, that He adopted them, that all who believed in His name should become the children of God. He gave the right, even, to become children of God. And Jesus says, my brothers. There's such clarity here. In his ascension, he will be able 
to be known by all people throughout space and time anywhere because he ascends and will send out his spirit to connect us to him. And he himself will dwell within us in our hearts through faith. And in that dwelling and in that connecting to us and that coming to us, we become brothers and sisters of Jesus. We become adopted heirs of salvation with him. It's a bond that cannot be broken. Jesus is the son of God by nature. We are sons and daughters of God by adoption. For we cannot be that which Jesus is by nature, for he is truly God, but also because he is truly man, we can be caught up with him. And being caught up with him, we finally get to participate. We finally get to receive all of the love of God himself. The divine love that exists within the Trinity is poured upon us through Jesus. And it's a glorious thing that we get to live in that fellowship that exists and has always existed within our triune God. We are brought together with him. And so Mary got to be the first witness and to receive the complete witness. And she is sent back to Jesus' brothers by adoption, the apostles, to tell them, I have seen the Lord. And then she tells him everything that he has told her here in this moment. It's a glorious thing of how this resurrection is made known. It's rather funny, I think, that John puts in here that Mary thought that Jesus must have been the gardener considering where everything started at the beginning. That there was a garden, and there was deception of the woman in the garden. And here, at a tomb with probably a garden around it, she sees another man and assumes that he is the gardener. And here is a woman here standing before him who becomes the first witness of the truth and the reality of the resurrection. At the beginning, a woman was deceived, and now, here at the resurrection, a woman is the first witness to go out and speak the truth now, to tell the truth to the, to the apostles so that they will then come and know Jesus in a new way. She gets to be that witness. And her looking at Jesus and thinking that he was the gardener initially. N.T. Wright says something along the lines of that there's something that is so wrong with that and yet so right in Mary's thinking. The gardener she sees Mistaking Jesus for the gardener is not something that we should let go of so easy. Because again, in that original garden, man lost his original righteousness. And so a gardener was needed to bring him back to where he should have been. How strangely right that she had that initial thought. Because Jesus is that ultimate gardener, the one who clears away the weeds and the stones of our hearts that we might come to faith, that we might receive his grace, that we might be made new. The one who brings his work to bear in us something we never knew by the work of his grace and compassion. He brings his work to bear upon this earth, working through his resurrection now to strip sin away. And being the true and ultimate gardener, he will strip all sin away. He'll remove it all by his resurrection. When he returns and raises his faithful into new life, he will renew the heavens and the earth and all things will be purified and purged of the sin and the weeds and the stones and the things that have hardened the dirt of the earth to keep it from receiving the fullness of who God is. Jesus the gardener 
there near his tomb, speaking to Mary compassionately, causing her to see him truly for who he is now, the Messiah. May he cultivate in us the very work that we need today, that as he has been raised into a new kind of bodily life, one that is beyond our comprehension right now, but nonetheless is true and real, not just merely resuscitating to die once more, but raised into a new kind of life where the life of God himself is fully manifested and released into his humanity, bringing him into new life, glorifying him, something we will one day partake of through faith. One day when we all die, we will be raised back into new life. We will receive this same kind of new life, this life that keeps us in one sense the same, but yet so different from what we are right now. Because Jesus has been raised and is the ultimate gardener. And so we start where we began with a garden so long ago. The original garden was full of deception, a place of the fall and a bringing about of desolation. Here in the second garden, with the new gardener, there's a revelation of truth, a raising up, a resurrection, a renewal of all creation that now extends here to us today, that we might believe, that we might be drawn near and drawn into who Jesus is, that we might be like Mary and see him for who he is and receive him and then be sent out to others to tell of his resurrection, to tell others that he has ascended now and in his ascension he can dwell and be with each and every one of us, drawing near to us in the here and the now, renewing us, in mind, body, and soul. And so now look in faith to this one who is named Jesus. Look in faith to this one who has been raised from the dead, who has left behind the vestiges of this broken world in order that he could renew this broken world. He is truly in the flesh and raised bodily from the dead. And by doing that has renewed the body in a way that we will all partake of one day. And so may we Stand in hope, looking toward Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, who will raise us, too, one day from the dead, who will strip us of the sin that dwells within us and renew us in totality like he has been renewed through his resurrection. He bore our sins that we might receive complete renewal. And through bearing our sins, he has been raised into new life that he pours upon us today. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.